The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise in banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi, making Kiwi better off. I want to get a little personal. I want to talk about where I grew up, what I should have been, what happened to the land I grew up on, and what happened to the water that flows around it. This is a podcast about water policy and resource management reform, but actually it's about much more than that. It's about how we use our water, how we can pollute our environment or make it healthier, who controls it. Who decides when we fight over it? And how do we avoid making things worse than they already are? So let's backtrack. I grew up on a dairy farm, a place called Galatea, which is a valley in between the Kangaroa Forest and the Uruwas in the Eastern Bay of Plenty. It is bordered by two rivers, one of which was at the back of the farm I grew up on. It's called the Fitanaki River. And that flowed into the Rangataiki River, which goes down through the valley and out towards the sea up near Whakatane. And it is a lovely river. In fact, both of them are lovely. And I remember growing up in them and loving them to bits, fishing for trout with my mates, um, believing the water was clean as heck. The farm we grew up on was not irrigated. This was at a time in the 70s and 80s when you just relied on the weather to get the water. And our farm was not that productive because of it. There were long times in the summer when there was no rain, the grass didn't grow, it turned brown and Dad had to dry the cows off early. I remember it well. And we left uh, Galatea in the late 1970s before the bigger irrigations happened. So when that land was sold, it wasn't worth that much, really. But there were people who understood how if only you could get your hands on the water in that water table from those rivers, pop it onto the farm, grow the grass fast, put a lot more cows on, Bob's your uncle, the land is worth a lot more money. Because in the 70s, 80s, 90s, there were no restrictions on how much water you could take. If you had that piece of land and it had access to the water, effectively you could use it. And there was no one checking the nitrate levels or asking you how much nitrogen you put on the soil or making sure that the cows didn't wander into the river and have a jolly good crap. And then towards the end of the 70s and 80s, at the bottom of the river, there was an attempt to create a hydroelectric scheme. So there was an artificial lake created. So a lot of those rivers that flowed through the dairy farms down to the lake 
became full of the water that flowed through the paddocks and down into the aquifers and out into the rivers and then down into the lakes. And about 20 years ago, I went back to Galatea, as you do, to the place where you grew up to find out what it looks like now, and everything was so much greener and richer. And there were these big irrigation machines everywhere, sucking water from the land, taking it from the river, pumping it out. And I made the mistake of checking the value of the farm that I grew up on. Shockingly, millions more. Very rich, uh, lots of money made from this land. And it got me thinking about how is it you change the value of land and how do you make sure you keep it when really the value is all about your access to water? For many ways, that's the story of our country for the last 20 or 30 years. A whole bunch of people realised that if they got access to the land and the water rights that came with it for free and they could irrigate that land, they could suddenly turn that land into something valuable. And if they could keep the access to the water, quantify it, carve it off, make sure others didn't get it, then that was a right that essentially increased the value of the land. And when you're a farmer and a banker, it's the value of the land which is the thing that's really interesting. So what we saw through the early 2000s, right up until just a few years ago, was a massive land grab, well, lots of purchases really, particularly in Canterbury, Southland, and in various other places where land which really was only suitable for sheep and beef suddenly became dairy land because it could be irrigated. And we saw all of those amazing schemes and lots of those irrigating pivots spread across the Canterbury Plains. Looked great. Uh, Ashburton, boomtown. And it will seem good for a while until we realised that a lot of those dairy farms were putting an awful lot of nitrates through the water tables and into the water courses, the rivers, the lakes. And we started to see the blooms come up. And then people started to ask questions about what happens when you have too much nitrate in your water supply and you start feeding it to babies. Well, it turns out it's very dangerous. That's part of the story in this week's When the Facts Change. How do we avoid that happening again? But more importantly, how do we avoid the legislation designed to solve this problem, or is at least done in a reaction to this problem, don't create even more problems. And here's where it's worth going back in time again to one of the foundational documents of the modern political economy. That is the Resource Management Act. It's one of three acts passed or started in 1989, which I called Year Zero for the modern New Zealand economy. Those three acts are the Reserve Bank of New Zealand Act, which essentially put us on a path to low inflation and low interest rates. Yes, <laughs> that did happen a few years ago and was been the case for the last 30 years. Then there was the Resource Management Act, started under Geoffrey Palmer and eventually completed by Simon Upton, who, by the way, is now the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment and very closely involved in watching how the Resource Management Act is eventually changed. And then the Public Finance Act, which tied them all together. These were reactions to the dictatorial approach of Robert Muldoon through the 70s, in which he basically stomped around the country with the Ministry of Works, 
taking land, buying it cheaply, whacking up dams and not really taking too much notice of what people who cared about the environment were saying. When Muldoon left, there was a reaction. People wanted to put in place a new piece of legislation to stop that from ever happening again. Well, we know that in many ways it was good. It stopped a lot more. In fact, there's never been that sort of scale of Clyde Dam built ever again. And it was designed for a population which wasn't going to grow that much in future. The problem was, of course, our population did grow and the Resource Management Act, uh, for good or evil, stopped a lot of the development, particularly in cities, stopped new houses from being built, stopped new infrastructure from being built. And particularly when done in combination with limits on government borrowing and government investment on infrastructure meant that we have fundamentally underinvested in our infrastructure for 20 or 30 years and now there's a reaction. That's why the Resource Management Act is being repealed. The problem is, are we throwing out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, and is there a danger of unintended consequences of using I wouldn't call it an act of revenge, but certainly a reactionary act to stop development and to solve some of the problems we have with our environment by passing a new act. Could we be making things worse? Well, in this week's When the Facts Change, I talk to Vanessa Winning, who is the Chief Executive of Irrigation New Zealand and is concerned that the changes happening to the Resource Management Act will actually make things worse. When the aim, particularly for many activists in and around Wellington, Auckland, who see in the Resource Management Act an opportunity to, to solve and rectify some of those issues around water quality, water allocation, and to stop the sort of Wild West land grab we saw from paying off for those people able to ratchet up their water use and pump that into the value of land that, in effect, the Resource Management Act might actually make it worse. How? Well, when you look at how it's structured at the moment, remember, it's only a proposal, it's before Parliament, there's going to be debates and select committees through the year and we'll find out how it's going on. The aim of the bill is to create a 10-year consenting window, if you like, for those people with water rights. Now, that's different from what we've got at the moment. Some of the people who have access to water have it for 30 years or so, and the irrigators are concerned about how that changes things. They're also, frankly, I think, rightly concerned about how it's only the farmers who are being targeted. What about all the meatworks and all of the landfills and the water treatment plants? Um, certainly something to have a look at there. This week, we go deep into how we control and regulate and improve our water and land quality and whether the Resource Management Act might actually make things worse. This week on When the Facts Change. Well, kia ora, and welcome to When the Facts Change to Vanessa Winning, the CEO of Irrigation New Zealand. Vanessa, great to see you here, and I'm, I'm hopeful that you've managed to cope with all of these, uh, these floods. Yeah, um, well, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Tell us about the irrigation sector in New Zealand. For those people who maybe have seen the odd sprinkler or one of those big machines with the wheels that goes across the paddocks, but don't have a clearer idea of the scale or where or um, how important it is in the economy and in the rural sector. Yeah, um, I think 
irrigation, if you can see it, you kind of had a, have a particular view around it. So um, Irrigation New Zealand is a membership organisation. We look after um, organisations that work in um, farming, um, rural settings, um, schemes that, that bring the water out of the rivers or, or create capture and storage options. Uh, we look at um, organisations that are looking after um, recreational facilities, so things like your golf courses and your stadiums, all the way through to district councils, etc. So it's quite wide, um, and most of um, the grass and uh, produce, uh, in particular fruit and veggies that you find in New Zealand, will be um, produced under irrigation. So you're representing not just the farmers, but the industry around fruit and veggies and some other um, farming, such as uh, dairying, sheep farming, cropping? Yeah, yeah. So when I think about it from a percentage of product under irrigation, it's around about 20% of the dairy sector uh, is, is irrigated, around 15 or slightly less uh, of the sheep and beef sector and about 90% of your fruit and veggies, that, um, and that includes your beer and your wine production as well. So when you think about it, most of the food we eat in Aotearoa, plus a lot of the food we export, depends on irrigation. Particularly fruit, veggies, beer and wine, yeah, definitely. Um, we Animal agriculture uh, tends to be in places that have naturally falling rainfall that produces grass at the right time of the year. Um, Canterbury and parts of Otago being the exception to that and so that's the more visual part of irrigation when it comes to dairy production in particular but outside of those areas um, most of our animal agriculture is not sitting under um, irrigation. Uh, we utilise the water for other reasons um, such as stock um, stock water. So it's, it's quite um, misleading I think sometimes when people are talking about irrigation, the assumption is that, you know, it's, it's animal irrigation or, or for animal production. But, um, you know, as, as I say, most of our fruit and veggies, in fact, it's required. You know, if you don't have water at the right time of the growing cycle for any plant, um, that plant's going to uh, stress and then wither and die. Um, and so, you know, irrigation is essential for, for plant growth. So last year, the government introduced the Natural Built Environment uh, bill to become mm -hmm. an act and the Strategic Planning Act. Uh, and this is all designed, uh, two of at least three of the bills, to replace the Resource Management Act. And most of the debate around the RMA reforms have been around getting more houses built. But of course, it covers the entire land of uh, the country. And tell us what it is about the two bills now in front of Parliament that you're concerned about from an irrigation sector point of view? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. Um, one, first of all, we agree. It, uh, RMA is a very difficult, very cumbersome and, and does need a change. So um, we are pleased that this is being done um, and it's not easy. Like it's it's something I think has been put off and, and it's great to see it being tackled. So first of all, um, we're comfortable with the idea that this is, is happening and that the approach under the Randerson report generally speaking, is, is a good approach in terms of the structure. The issues that um, we see, uh, first of all, only one part of the components, there's four components to this, and only one part of those components is actually under submission right now. And so 
when you've got pieces that need to fit together, puzzle pieces that need to fit together, it's very difficult to submit on one component without knowing what's in the other three components that will you know, feed into that. So while we've got one of the acts, well, actually, we've got two of the acts, we've got the Spatial Planning Act um, also under discussion at the moment, there's two other components that are still to come through. So the climate change adaption um, component, that's, that isn't due um, for another couple of years, and then the national planning framework, which is being reviewed at the moment, and I'm, I'm on the working group for that, that won't come um, probably be put into public until maybe another six to 12 months away. So it is hard to go through an 800-page document and, and not know what the rest of the components are going to look like. So that, that causes uncertainty. Um, and then secondly to that, there are parts of this bill that are particularly uh, impactful on farming and in particular around water allocation and water resources. And so that has a significant impact on existing consent holders and um, any new consent holders that would happen in the future. So how, how would the, the um, Natural Built Environment Act change or um, alter the underpinning for the consents and the allocations that people have at the moment, which are a, a real collection of different histories and details and district councils and farmers. So it's it's not easy to say they're all one thing. But essentially, a lot of those rights to use water are not paid for. They're not owned in the same way that you could have freehold land. So how might the natural built environment change that? Yeah, and, and I think that's really important. So water is not um, a commodity in, in that sense. It is not owned. It is not traded. Uh, allocation um, is is the part of the bill that is important. Um, so it's not about the cost of the water necessarily. It's actually about the ability to utilise the water either you know, within a, um, a river run situation or a, a capture and storage situation. So there's two components to, to irrigation. So let's just assume it's a, a river run situation, which is most of the Canterbury region. Um, those allocations are on a consent basis that um, go up to the likes of ECAN. They then um, try and work out who needs water to be allocated, how those allocations will work against the other people who are also taking from those rivers at that point in time, and then working the process between between them all to um, bring that together. Those allocations can be anywhere between 30 and, and 10 years. Under the um, proposal for the NBEA, they will all be 10 years. And the issue that we have around that is that it's singling out farming. Um, no other area has uh, within the NBEA is singled out. So other contaminating um, organisations or, or, or contaminating industries, which, you know, we, we do know that farming has an impact on its environment, but other contaminating industries are not singled out the same way that, that farming is and are not under the 10-year consent process. So that is a concern. You're talking there about meatworks, uh, industrial plants, bottling exactly. plants. Exactly, um, yeah council uh, water treatment works, those sorts of things? We're also talking about um, waste management, so um, gullies, um, mining, all of those things that um, have an impact on the environment that are not singled out like farming is. So the Farm Environment Plan is within the Act itself, which is quite unusual. 
um, it's not normally specified as within an act of parliament. Normally they would sit under particular, um, you know, uh, environment standards. So your, your, your national environment standards, what we call the NESs, or your um, requirements under an NPS. And that's part of the national planning framework, which makes a lot of sense and that they can change on a regular basis based on um, discussion within community frameworks or, or whatever the um, particular strategic issues are at the time. But putting it within an act makes it a very difficult process to actually get change for the future. And it also creates real uncertainty for um, farming communities in particular, but also investment in localised um, hydroelectricity or um, energy production. It also creates uncertainty around the schemes themselves to um, create you know, additional storage and capture so that we don't rely on the river run. And then it has a longer-term impact on whether or not a farmer will invest to make changes on their farm in order to be more environmentally um, sound. So it, ha- it has a lot of unintended consequences. So when you talk about uh, hydroelectric schemes that uh, have dams that that work with farmers to irrigate those farms, are you saying that the allocation of those rights would also have a spillover effect, um, pardon the pun, into the uh, electricity area? The smaller independent electricity generators, absolutely. So the large ones are covered, um, but we're talking about those localised hydroelectricity. So for example... Um, Apua Dam, they create localised hydroelectricity um, as well as irrigation and they work um, in sync with those two applications, they would be impacted by a 10-year consent process, yes. Currently it's about 30 years. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted. They've tightened monetary policy. They've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makaurau, 
Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. So why would it be a problem for uh, a farmer or an irrigation scheme to move from a current consenting process, which might be 30 years, or there might not be one at all, to a 10-year process? You know, that doesn't change the amount of water that people have or change the, any price for it. It's still there. They can still keep farming. Why would a 30-year to a 10-year make a difference? I guess it would be like... Uh you know, if I think about it from an urban perspective, um, I've got a house going up next to me. Um, he's putting in three bathrooms, as I understand it. In order for him to put in his three bathrooms, um, potentially he needs to take one of my bathrooms away. And if we went through a consent process, then in five years' time, I would have to apply again to have three toilets. Um, his three toilets might take precedent over my three toilets. Why would I invest in redoing my bathroom downstairs, which has just gotten flooded, if I've only got five years to go on my consent and I don't know for sure that I'm going to get that that toilet um, renewed, I might as well make my bathroom a study and not not be concerned about that investment. So, you know, if I think about it or if you, if you take it into a, a conceptual urban situation and you go, okay, I'm allowed this amount of drinking water, um, you know, allocation each year, um, I, it, I've moved into the suburb because this particular amount of drinking water allocation is available to me. Um, you know, I've got 30 years to do that. I can then sell my house on with that drinking water allocation or those three toilets. Whereas under a 10-year consent process, that means that, you know, as soon as you get closer and closer, it's more like a leasehold approach, right? So the sooner you get closer and closer to the end of that consent, the value of that drops and the ability for you to actually do any investment changes as well. Just putting my uh, devil's advocate hat on, there are a bunch of people who argue that um, the consents to take water and uh, the um, often uh, historic accidental um, uh, allocations of water uh, have seen the owners of land able to use that water and often they've gone from using not much water to using a lot of water the values of those properties have increased sharply. In effect, owners have used irrigation schemes to increase the value of their properties, often um, using borrowed money. And for those people who argue, you know, too much water is being taken, it's being used to, uh, in the long run, in in particular in animal farming, um, uh, has may damage uh, water bodies down further down the track. And by moving from a 30-year uh, consenting process to a 10-year consenting process, this is a bit like karma on the other way around, that the uh, land gains from the use of the uh, water, which isn't being charged for, was um, unearned, and now the land price reduction is unearned, swings and roundabouts. What would you say to that? I don't disagree with with the philosophy around that um i guess the the way that this is portrayed within the act is not specific to any one type of farming 
It also means that all or you know any allocation of water, be it for animal agriculture, fruit and veggies, beer and wine, are all under that same process. And so one of the um, areas that we are trying to support farmers in is, is changing of land use, right? We're actually trying to support farmers to um, take away some of the marginal land that they may be um, farming you know, animal agriculture on and moving that into um, lower impact things such as maybe manuka or um, you know, side kiwi fruit, avocados, etc. So if we look at the north, um, you know, Northland, for example, we've moved um, quite a quite a number of um, sheep and beef farms and, and dairy farms. Uh, you know, as the weather has gotten um, is warmer, um, into kiwi fruit, avocados, etc. So high production um, fruit and veggies, essentially. Without water, you can't do that. And without an investment in um, a consent process, you can't do that. Now, on average, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, so Avocados New Zealand might contact you and give you the right um, number, but on average, an avocado farm takes between 8 and 10 years to pay back from, you know, to, to make a profit, that first year of profit. Why would you do that? If, if you're only going to get a 10-year consent and you don't know that in 10 years you're going to still be able to utilise water from you know, either a capture or storage uh, irrigation scheme such as the new ones that are going up in, in Taitokoro at, at the moment. If you can only um, guarantee 10 years, why would a bank give you the money to actually invest in that property to make those changes, which are the things that we're asking our farmers to do? So I, I think that the, the, the rationale for putting it down as 10 years is, is based on this, you know, this view that um, you know, 10 years is a period of time where reallocation needs to happen. But the unintended consequence of that is some of the things we're asking our farmers to do um, in terms of the improvements that we're asking them to do, you know, like even if we look at it from a regenerative farming perspective, regen takes more irrigation, not less. So I think there's, there's an unintended consequence of putting it down to 10 years as a maximum number rather than allowing a case-by-case system, which is what is in place at the moment. I'm not advocating that everything should be allowed to go to 30 years. What I'm advocating is that it should be based on what the national planning framework puts in place, which is then fed into that regional planning framework, and that a community can decide, you know, what do we want this community to look like? Where do we want, you know, these things to be? How long do we need to help, for example, an avocado farmer or a, or a um, kiwi fruit farmer invest in converting, you know, some other land into something that's um, potentially lower intensity and potentially um, removing um, other production from its um, from its base. So it's not a one size fits all, Bernard, and I think that's the concern that we have. So I suspect one of the reasons um, the proponents of the Act have gone for 10 years is to essentially start the clock ticking on a process of um, reallocation of land use and ownership and of an attempt to um, settle some of the long-running you know, concerns about uh, land use, effectively use this change of Act 
as a tool to um, be the arbiter of these ongoing disputes and, and essentially force the issue uh, in some places. Because one of the frustrations of those who have concer been concerned about the growth of irrigation, particularly for uh, dairy farming, is that there's been a lot of, uh, in effect, land grabs where people have seen that regulation is coming They've seen an opportunity to grab some uh, l low value uh, land which has water rights attached to it, use irrigation to effectively ramp up the value of the land, uh, use the water and the land in a way that uh, creates costs for others downstream and in the long run and um, make sure that you have a nice high production level before the regulation comes in. There's a grandfathering approach, which means that uh, you extend the value of your land for as long as possible. By effectively having a short click ticking clock, you, you truncate the ability for those who have uh, um, been a little bit um, cowboyish, jumped in, and effectively um, used the slow process of regulation to ramp up their land values and hope to hold on to that value for as long as possible. Um, isn't isn't a 10-year truncation a, a, a way in which you can um, deal with that issue? Or one of the risks, I suppose, is if you go to 30 years, you effectively slow down that process of land use reallocation and the contests that will inevitably happen. How else will you find a way to reallocate in a reasonable time, unless it is 10 years? Yeah. So so that we already have um, abilities to do that. So under the, um, you know, the NPS for freshwater and under the National Environment Standards for freshwater, there is already um, requirements for change. So there are nitrogen application requirements. There are... Um, concerns around um, drinking water, there's um, the drinking water services um, bill that's also been passed. There's a number of different applications already in play that haven't actually been put in force yet. And that's why I would prefer, and, and I'm not the only person talking, um, and there's a number of organisations across the board discussing this at the moment, to actually put those within those frameworks. Because as the country changes and as application changes, they are a much easier way of making improvements and enforcing application within a council environment than an act of parliament. And so we're not saying throw out 10 years altogether. What we're saying is either don't define it as being a 10-year process for farming alone, because that doesn't seem fair, um, but also if you are going to define it, then make sure that there are there is an application process that you can then contest it or, or have some other way of doing it because right now it's a blanket 10-year process for all types of farming, um, all types of, of water allocation. It will have unintended, significant unintended consequences at the same time as we're asking our farmers to make significant investment in their farming operations. It will also have significant um, impact on our ability to do infrastructure and to improve our infrastructure and to, you know, get the banks or, or syndications to fund it. And the concern there is right now we should be, you know, if I think about what's happened in Auckland over the last few days, we should be able to capture and store a lot more of the water as it's falling down than we are doing right now. We have not in this country invested in water 
um, in, a, in a water strategy, and, and we're not talking three waters, we're talking the fourth water here. We're talking actually, you know, capture that water when it's falling so that you can apply that water when it's not in a way that takes that reliance off the river run that we are actually relying on very heavily at the moment. If we did that and if we, uh, you know, use the water in the way that, that we had uh, that available, then we would A, have a lot less pollutants going into um, you know, our streams because we'd be able to uh, capture that. We'd also um, have a lot less issues around allocation because you know one thing you cannot say about New Zealand is that we lack water. We get enough water for this country to thrive all the time, like consistently. The thing that we haven't done, and, and if I think just about Auckland, we have not invested in um, water infrastructure on a, on a you know on a large scale. When I think about it from a dam perspective, for example, since 1971, you know, I was born after that. That's a long time to think. Actually, you know, what is our what is our part of the country need? 1971, we had 600,000 odd people. We've got 1.5 million people. We've got onions and potatoes competing with people's drinking water. We've got um, Auckland Council or, or Water Care taking water out of the Waikato River that's impacting on the ability for um, farming along the Waikato River and, and you know, over-allocation. So one thing that we need to be doing actually is investing more in water capture and storage, and there's no way you would do that under a 10-year process when you know we're talking about big projects potentially that have significant intergenerational application to them. What would you say, though, to those um, activists and people who want to effectively use the RMA to achieve the things they want because they're frustrated that the existing processes, particularly around um, water quality, nitrate use, has not um, delivered uh, much of an improvement and effectively allowed... um, a, a massive change in land use, which, um, because of the way nitrate works, is going to eventually f- flow through in decades to come to a generation who uh, are, are going to have to deal with the resu- results of it. So um, uh, couldn't you say this RMA process um, tries to deal with things that the existing processes couldn't and... Uh, maybe this is a way to achieve those things if the existing district councils and rules in place haven't done it. So I would go back to um, the fact that under the national planning framework, all of those NESs and NPSs, you know, in terms of the statement of intent and the application and the targets and limits, all already sit under that. And that impacts on urban development, um, rural urban land use, it impacts on water quality. It, there's a significant number of applications sitting there already that have really only started to come into force. So if you think about some of the um, changes that have been made, in particular over the last 10 years, uh, a number of those are actually only coming into force now because of the consent process, but also because of the um, longevity of, of applying things from a retrospective perspective. So you've got to give people time to make those changes. And if I think about what's going on in Canterbury at the moment, there's a significant reduction in nitrogen application. There is a significant reduction in nitrogen leaching. It is going to take time 
Um, and, and no question, farmers are on board to make those changes, but also they're being enforced to make those changes. So I think when, when you know, the, the likes of the NGOs that you talk about, um, their expectation is it's going to be instantaneous and, and you can't do that to people. You can't have an application that is, right, tomorrow you're going to change everything that you do um, right now. Yeah, I think there's got to be some kind of leeway in there and, and it is doing what it is intended to do under those NESs and NPSs. So, for example, this year, you know, um, we've got significant change in terms of nitrogen application, 190 kg cap. Um, that has only just come into force in, in this year. We've also got the winter grazing. That has only come into force this year. Those things need to play out, and the implications of those things in terms of you know pollutants and impact on the environment, they will play out, but they've only just started. Just finally, um, what would you like to see the Act um, change to? Um, on the face of it, you're saying 10 years is too short. Should it go to 30 years? You're saying only farmers seem to be included. Are you saying that all the other users of waters, the, the meatworks and all the rest, should be included as well? Or are you saying something different? I'm saying that I don't think it should have in the Act a time frame. I, I think that that should fit within a, an application framework such as the, the National Planning Framework and have an NES around it. And I think it needs to be around classes of farming, application, um, use of water, not based on a um, you know one-size-fits-all approach to everything. And I think it also needs to, to apply differently to different catchments. So, you know, allocation of 10 years for water rights and uh, on the West Coast is probably not going to have as big an impact as, say, allocation for water rights on the East Coast where, you know, water is, is, is a scarce commodity and in particular in the Hawke's Bay where, you know, we've got a number of apple farmers screaming out for development and, and water at the moment. So I think we've got to change this myth that irrigation equals animals because it's not the case and we've got to change the way people think about water and its application because if you're an efficient irrigator you aren't polluting if you are doing the right things with your water your water is being taken up by the roots of the plants at the right period of time taking out that nutrients at the same time and you shouldn't be polluting so I think there's there's a couple of things that need to change there one is improvements on farm in terms of application of irrigation and and we are seeing that especially in the Canterbury region as I talked about and also um, improving the way that we think about irrigation. Irrigation is much wider than animal agriculture and and we've got to change those connections. Mm, The issue though is you do wonder if uh, the good farmers regret allowing the bad farmers to run right during the 2010s in the way that they um, turned the Canterbury Plains from sheep farms into dairy farms and uh, and whether in that rush, in effect, it has punished the rest of the industry and forced it to deal with years and years of regulatory backlash where um, simply not being so aggressive in the 2010s would have changed it. I think this idea of bad farms versus good farms is one that we have to change to, Bernard. I, I, you know, the vast majority of farmers are not bad farmers and I, I, they're doing the best that they can and with the tools that they had at the time, we all learn, you know. I, I just think it's, it's a harsh thing to say that 
what things have happened in, in 2010, we're going to punish them now for. I, I think we really have to be thinking about how do we help make those changes and ensuring that we can help them invest in the right applications and, and in particular water use and, and water consenting. We can't do that under a 10-year framework. So, you know, I, th- I think we, we move forward. Let's stop thinking about what we would have done in, in hindsight and actually start thinking about, okay, what are the solutions that we need in place and how do we make sure that whatever this RMA framework looks like, that it actually allows for, you know, investment in New Zealand because right now we, we are not investing in our water infrastructure and anywhere near the, the capacity that we need to be doing. Um, and very topical at the moment. Vanessa Winning, the CEO of Irrigation New Zealand, thank you so much for coming on When the Facts Change. Nam mihi nui. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.